Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road and Agatha Christie's The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. Today, chapters 9 and 10. This is your host, John Hagedorn. For your listening convenience, I'll give you a little bit of review going back and a little bit going forward. In the last chapters, Poirot identifies to Dr. Shepard key clues, including the phone call, the open window, the door locked from the inside, and an out-of-place chair. Throughout Poirot's investigation, he uncovers truths. He points out those who stood to gain by Roger's death. The unknown blackmailer was about to be unmasked. Ralph and Ursula were secretly married, which would be grounds for Ralph's disinheritance. Poirot states unequivocally that everyone involved is hiding something. Dr. Shepard begins to record the unfolding investigation in a personal manuscript while his mistrust of Poirot's techniques mounts. As Poirot fits together the puzzle pieces using evidence and knowledge of human behavior, a composite of the killer emerges. Poirot was able to paint a psychological portrait of a blackmailer, a once decent but now weak man who can't resist the temptation to extort a rich widow and who pushes her too far. And now, Chapter 9, The Goldfish Pond. We walked back to the house together. There was no sign of the inspector. Poirot paused on the terrace and stood with his back to the house, slowly turning his head from side to side. Una belle propriété, he said at last, appreciatively. Who inherited it? His words gave me almost a shock. It is an odd thing, but until that moment the question of inheritance had never come into my head. Poirot watched me keenly. It is a new idea to you, that, he said at last. "'You had not thought of it before, eh?' "'No,' I said truthfully. "'I wish I had.' He looked at me again curiously. "'I wonder just what you mean by that,' he said thoughtfully. "'Ah, no,' as I was about to speak. "'You would not tell me your real thought.' "'Everyone has something to hide,' I quoted, smiling. "'Exactly.' "'You still believe that?' "'More than ever, my friend. "'But it is not easy to hide things from Hercule Poirot. "'He has a knack of finding out.' "'He descended the steps of the Dutch garden as he spoke. "'Let us walk a little,' he said over his shoulder. "'The air is pleasant today.' 
I followed him. He led me down a path to the left, which was enclosed in yew hedges. A walk led down the middle, bordered each side with formal flower beds, and at the end was a round paved recess with a seat and a pond of goldfish. Instead of pursuing the path to the end, Poirot took another which wound up the side of a wooded slope. In one spot the trees had been cleared away, and a seat had been put. Sitting there, one had a splendid view over the countryside, and one looked right down on the paved recess and the goldfish pond. "'England is very beautiful,' said Poirot, his eyes straying over the prospect. Then he smiled. "'And so are English girls,' he said in a lower tone. "'Hush, my friend, and look at the pretty picture below us.' It was then that I saw Flora. She was moving along the path we had just left, and she was humming a little snatch of a song. Her step was more dancing than walking, and in spite of her black dress, there was nothing but joy in her whole attitude. She gave a sudden pirouette on her toes, and her black draperies swung out. At the same time, she flung her head back and laughed outright. As she did so, a man stepped out from the trees. It was Hector Blunt. The girl started. Her expression changed a little. "'How you startled me! I didn't see you!' Blunt said nothing, but stood looking at her for a minute or two in silence. "'What I like about you,' said Flora, with a touch of malice, "'is your cheery conversation.' I fancy that at that Blunt reddened under his tan. His voice, when he spoke, sounded different. It had a curious sort of humility in it. "'Never was much of a fellow for talking, not even when I was young.' "'And that was a very long time ago, I suppose,' said Flora gravely. "'I caught the undercurrent of laughter in her voice, but I don't think Blunt did.' "'Yes,' he said simply. "'It was.' "'How does it feel to be Methuselah?' asked Flora. "'This time the laughter was more apparent, but Blunt was following out an idea of his own. "'Remember the Johnny who sold his soul to the devil in return for being made young again?' "'There's an opera about it.' "'Faust, you mean?' "'That's the beggar. Rum story. Some of us would do it if we could.' "'Anyone would think you were creaking at the joints to hear you talk,' cried Flora, half vexed, half amused. Blunt said nothing for a minute or two. Then he looked away from Flora into the middle distance and observed to an adjacent tree trunk that it was about time he got back to Africa. "'Are you going on another expedition?' "'Shooting things.' "'I expect so. "'Usually do, you know. "'Shoot things, I mean.' "'You shot that head in the hall, didn't you?' "'Blunt nodded. "'Then he jerked out, going rather red as he did so. "'Care for some decent skins any time? "'If so, I could get them for you.' "'Oh, please do,' cried Flora. "'Will you really? "'You won't forget?' "'I shan't forget,' said Hector Blunt. "'He added,' "'in a sudden burst of communicativeness. "'Time I went. "'I'm no good in this sort of life. "'Haven't got the manners for it. "'I'm a rough fellow. "'No use in society. "'Never remember the things one's expected to say. "'Yes, it's time I went.' "'But you're not going at once,' cried Flora. "'Not, not while we're in all this trouble. "'Oh, please, if you go.' "'She turned away a little.' "'You want me to stay?' asked Blunt. He spoke deliberately, but quite simply. "'We all—' "'I meant you personally,' said Blunt, 
with directness. Flora turned slowly back again and met his eyes. "'I want you to stay,' she said. "'If—if if that makes any difference.' "'It makes all the difference,' said Blunt. There was a moment's silence. They sat down on the stone seat by the goldfish pond. It seemed as though neither of them knew quite what to say next. "'It's—it's it's such a lovely morning,' said Flora at last. "'You know, I can't help feeling happy, in spite—in spite of everything. That's awful, I suppose.' "'It's quite natural,' said Blunt. "'Never saw your uncle until two years ago, did you? Can't be expected to grieve very much. Much better to have no humbug about it.' "'There's something awfully consoling about you,' said Flora. "'You make things so simple.' "'Things are simple, as a rule,' said the big-game hunter. "'Not always,' said Flora. Her voice had lowered itself, and I saw Blunt turn and look at her, bringing his eyes back from, apparently, the coast of Africa to do so. He evidently put his own construction on her charge of tone, for he said, after a minute or two, in a rather abrupt manner, "'I say, you know, you mustn't worry. About that young chap, I mean.' "'Inspector's an ass. "'Everybody knows. "'Utterly absurd to think he could have done it. "'Man from outside. "'Burglar chap. "'That's the only possible solution.' "'Flora turned to look at him. "'Do you really think so?' "'Don't you?' said Blunt quickly. "'I—I— "'Oh, yes, of course.' "'Another silence. "'And then Flora burst out. "'I'm—I'll tell you why I feel so happy this morning. "'However heartless you think me, "'I'd rather tell you. "'It's because the lawyer has been... "'Mr. Hammond. "'He told us about the will. "'Uncle Roger has left me 20,000 pounds. "'Think of it! "'20,000 beautiful pounds!' "'Blunt looked surprised. "'Does it mean so much to you?' "'Mean much to me? "'Why, it's everything. "'Freedom. "'Life. "'No more scheming and scraping and lying.' "'Lying?' said Blunt. "'sharply interrupting. "'Flora seemed taken aback for a minute. "'Yes, you know what I mean,' she said uncertainly. "'Pretending to be thankful for all the nasty cast-off things "'rich relations give you. "'Last year's coats and skirts and hats.' "'Don't know much about ladies' clothes. "'Should have said you were always very well turned out.' "'It cost me something, though,' said Flora, in a low voice. "'Don't let's talk of horrid things.' "'I'm so happy. I'm free. Free to do what I like. Free not to—' She stopped suddenly. "'Not to what?' asked Blunt quickly. "'I forget now. Nothing important.' Blunt had a stick in his hand, and he thrust it into the pond, poking at something. "'What are you doing, Major Blunt?' "'There's something bright down there. Wondered what it was. It looks like a gold brooch.' "'Now I've stirred up the mud and it's gone.' "'Perhaps it's a crown,' suggested Flora, "'like the one Melisande saw in the water.' "'Melisande,' said Blunt reflectively. "'She's in an opera, isn't she?' "'Yes. You seem to know a lot about operas.' "'People take me sometimes,' said Blunt sadly. "'Funny idea of pleasure. "'Worse racket than the natives make with their tom-toms.' Flora laughed. "'I remember Melisande,' continued Blunt. "'Married an old chap, old enough to be her father. 
"'he threw a small piece of flint into the goldfish pond. "'Then, with a change of manner, he turned to Flora. "'Miss Ackroyd, can I do anything? "'About Patton, I mean. "'I know how dreadfully anxious you must be.' "'Thank you,' said Flora in a cold voice. "'There's really nothing to be done. "'Ralph will be all right. "'I've got hold of the most wonderful detective in the world, "'and he's going to find out all about it.' "'For some time I'd felt uneasy as to our position. "'We were not exactly eavesdropping, "'since the two in the garden below "'had only to lift their heads to see us. "'Nevertheless, I should have drawn attention to our presence before now, "'had not my companion put a warning pressure on my arm. "'Clearly he wished me to be silent. "'But now he rose briskly to his feet, clearing his throat. "'I demand pardon,' he cried. "'I cannot allow Mademoiselle thus extravagantly to compliment me "'and not draw attention to my presence. "'They say the listener hears no good of himself, "'but that is not the case this time. "'To spare my blushes, I must join you and apologize. "'He hurried down the path with me close behind him "'and joined the others by the pond. "'This is Mr. Hercule Borrow, said Flora. "'I expect you've heard of him?' Borrow bowed. "'I know Major Blunt by reputation,' he said politely. "'I'm glad to have encountered you, monsieur. "'I am in need of some information that you can give me.' "'Blunt looked at him inquiringly. "'When did you last see Monsieur Ackroyd alive?' "'At dinner.' "'And you neither saw nor heard anything of him after that?' "'Didn't see him. Heard his voice.' "'How was that?' "'I strolled out on the terrace.' "'Pardon me, what time was this?' "'About half-past nine. "'I was walking up and down, smoking in front of the drawing-room window. "'I heard Ackroyd talking in his study.' Poirot stooped and removed a microscopic weed. "'Surely you couldn't hear voices in the study from that part of the terrace,' he murmured. "'He was not looking at Blunt, but I was, "'and to my intense surprise, I saw the latter flush. "'I went as far as the corner.' "'he explained unwillingly. "'Ah, indeed,' said Borrow. "'In the mildest manner he conveyed an impression "'that more was wanted. "'Thought I saw a woman disappearing into the bushes. "'Just a gleam of white, you know. "'Must have been mistaken. "'It was while I was standing at the corner of the terrace "'that I heard Ackroyd's voice speaking to that secretary of his. "'To Geoffrey Raymond?' "'Yes, that's what I supposed at the time.' "'Seems I was wrong.' "'Mr. Ackroyd didn't address him by name?' "'No.' "'Then, if I may ask, why did you think?' Blunt explained laboriously. "'Took it for granted that it would be Raymond, "'because he had said just before I came out "'that he was taking some papers to Ackroyd. "'I never thought of it being anybody else.' "'Can you remember what the words were you heard?' "'I'm afraid I can't. "'Something quite ordinary and unimportant. "'Only caught a scrap of it. "'I was thinking of something else at the time.' "'It is of no importance,' murmured Poirot. "'Did you move a chair back against the wall "'when you went into the study after the body was discovered?' "'Chair? No. Why should I?' Poirot shrugged his shoulders but did not answer. "'He turned to Flora.' "'There is one thing I should like to know from you, mademoiselle. 
when you were examining the things in the silver table with Dr. Shepard, was the dagger in its place, or was it not? Flora's chin shot up. Inspector Raglan has been asking me that, she said resentfully. I've told him, and I'll tell you. I'm perfectly certain the dagger was not there. He thinks it was, and that Ralph sneaked it later in the evening. And, and he doesn't believe me. He thinks I'm saying it to, to shield Ralph. And aren't you? I asked gravely. Flora stomped her foot. You too, Dr. Zeppard? Oh, that's too bad. Poirot tactfully made a diversion. "'It is true what I heard you say, Major Blunt. "'There is something that glitters in this pond. "'Let us see if I can reach it.' "'He knelt down by the pond, "'bearing his arm to the elbow, "'and lowered it in very slowly "'so as not to disturb the bottom of the pond. "'But in spite of all his precautions, "'the mud eddied and swirled, "'and he was forced to draw his arm out again, "'empty-handed. "'He gazed ruefully at the mud upon his arm.' I offered him my handkerchief, which he accepted with fervent protestations of thanks. Blunt looked at his watch. "'Nearly lunchtime,' he said. "'We'd better be getting back to the house.' "'Will you lunch with us, Monsieur Poirot?' asked Flora. "'I should like you to meet my mother. She is very fond of Ralph.' The little man bowed. "'I shall be delighted, mademoiselle. And you will stay too, won't you, Dr. Shepard?' I hesitated. "'Oh, please do!' "'I wanted to, so I accepted the invitation without further ceremony. "'We set out towards the house, Flora and Blunt walking ahead. "'What hair?' said Poirot to me in a low tone, nodding towards Flora. "'The real gold. They will make a pretty couple. "'She and the dark, handsome Captain Patton, will they not?' "'I looked at him inquiringly but he began to fuss about a few microscopic drops of water on his coat sleeve. The man reminded me in some ways of a cat, his green eyes and his finicking habits. "'And all for nothing, too,' I said sympathetically. "'I wonder what it was in the pond.' "'Would you like to see?' asked Poirot. I stared at him. He nodded. "'My good friend,' he said gently and reproachfully. Hercule Poirot does not run the risk of disarranging his costume without being sure of attaining his object. To do so would be ridiculous and absurd. I am never ridiculous. But you brought your hand out empty, I objected. There are times when it is necessary to have discretion. Do you tell your patients everything, doctor? I think not. "'Nor do you tell your excellent sister everything either, is it not so? "'Before showing my empty hand, I dropped what it contained into my other hand. "'You shall see what that was.' "'He held out his left hand, palm open. "'On it lay a little circlet of gold, a woman's wedding ring. "'I took it from him. "'Look inside,' commanded Poirot. "'I did so. "'Inside was an inscription in fine writing.' From R, March 13th. I looked at Poirot, but he was busy inspecting his appearance in a tiny pocket glass. He paid particular attention to his mustaches, and none at all to me. I saw that he did not intend to be communicative.
We'll return with Chapter 10 right after these sponsor messages. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm, what flavor are you holding? Now, open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. And now, Chapter 10, The Parlor Maid. We found Mrs. Ackroyd in the hall. With her was a small, dried-up little man with an aggressive chin and sharp gray eyes, and lawyer written all over him. "'Mr. Hammond is staying to lunch with us,' said Mrs. Ackroyd. "'You know Major Blount, Mr. Hammond? And dear Dr. Shepard, also a close friend of poor Rogers. And let me see.' She paused, surveying Hercule Poirot in some perplexity. "'This is Monsieur Poirot, mother,' said Flora. "'I told you about him this morning.' "'Oh, yes,' said Mrs. Ackroyd vaguely. "'Of course, my dear, of course. "'He is to find Ralph, is he not?' "'He is to find out who killed Uncle,' said Flora. "'Oh, my dear,' cried her mother. "'Please, my poor nerves. "'I'm a wreck this morning, a positive wreck. "'Such a dreadful thing to happen. "'I can't help feeling that it must have been an accident of some kind. "'Roger was so fond of handling queer curios.' His hand must have slipped or something. This theory was received in polite silence. I saw Poirot edge up to the lawyer and speak to him in a confidential undertone. They moved aside into the embrasure of the window. I joined them, then hesitated. Perhaps I'm intruding, I said. Not at all, cried Poirot heartily. You and I, Monsieur le Docteur, we investigate this affair side by side. Without you, I should be lost. "'I desire a little information from the good Mr. Hammond.' "'You are acting on behalf of Captain Ralph Patone, I understand?' said the lawyer, cautiously. Poirot shook his head. "'Not so. I am acting in the interests of justice. Miss Ackroyd has asked me to investigate the death of her uncle.' Mr. Hammond seemed slightly taken aback. "'I cannot seriously believe that Captain Patone can be concerned in this crime,' he said. However strong the circumstantial evidence against him may be, the mere fact that he was hard-pressed for money— "'Was he hard-pressed for money?' interpolated Poirot quickly. The lawyer shrugged his shoulders. "'It was a chronic Ralph Patton,' he said dryly. "'Money went through his hands like water. He was always applying to his stepfather. "'Had he done so of late, during the last year, for instance?' "'I cannot say. Mr. Ackroyd did not mention the fact to me. "'I comprehend. Mr. Hammond, I take it that you are acquainted with the provisions of Mr. Ackroyd's will?' 
"'Certainly. That's my principal business here today. "'Then, seeing that I am acting for Miss Ackroyd, "'you will not object to telling me the terms of that will?' "'They are quite simple. "'Shorn of legal phraseology, "'and after paying certain legacies and bequests.' "'Such as?' interrupted Poirot. "'Mr. Hammond seemed a little surprised. "'A thousand pounds to his housekeeper, Miss Russell. Fifty pounds to the cook, Emma Cooper.' Five hundred pounds to his secretary, Mr. Godfrey, Mr. Jeffrey Raymond, then to various hospitals. Poirot held up his hand. Ah, the charitable bequests, they interest me not. Quite so. The income on ten thousand pounds worth of shares to be paid to Mrs. Cecil Ackroyd during her lifetime. Miss Flora Ackroyd inherits twenty thousand pounds outright. The residue, including this property, and the shares in Ackroyd and Son, "'to his adopted son, Ralph Patton. "'Mr. Ackroyd possessed a large fortune. "'A very large fortune. "'Captain Patton will be an exceedingly wealthy young man.' "'There was a silence. "'Poirot and the lawyer looked at each other. "'Came Mrs. Ackroyd's voice plaintively from the fireplace. "'The lawyer answered the summons. "'Poirot took my arm and drew me right into the window. "'Regarded the irises,' he remarked in rather a loud voice. "'Magnificent, are they not? "'A straight and pleasing effect.' "'At the same time I felt the pressure of his hands on my arm, "'and he added in a low tone, "'Do you really wish to aid me, "'to take part in this investigation?' "'Yes, indeed,' I said eagerly. "'There's nothing I should like better. "'You don't know what a dull old fogey's life I lead. "'Never anything out of the ordinary. "'Good. "'We'll be colleagues, then.' "'In a minute or two I fancy Major Blunt will join us. "'He is not happy with the good mamma. "'Now, there are some things I want to know, "'but I do not wish to seem to want to know them. "'Do you comprehend? "'So it will be your part to ask the questions.' "'What questions do you want me to ask?' "'I asked apprehensively. "'I want you to introduce the name of Mrs. Ferrars.' "'Yes?' "'Speak of her in a natural fashion. "'Ask him if he was down here when her husband died. "'You understand the kind of thing I mean. "'And while he replies, watch his face without seeming to watch it. "'C'est compris?' "'There was no time for more, for at that minute, as Poirot had prophesied, "'Blunt left the others in his abrupt fashion and came over to us. "'I suggested strolling on the terrace, and he acquiesced. Poirot stayed behind. I stopped to examine a late rose. "'How things change in the course of a day or so,' I observed. "'I was up here last Wednesday, I remember, walking up and down this same terrace. Ackroyd was with me, full of spirits. And now, three days later, Ackroyd's dead, poor fellow. Mrs. Farrar's dead. You knew her, didn't you?' "'But of course you did.' Blunt nodded his head. "'Had you seen her since you'd been down this time?' "'I went with Ackroyd to call. "'Last Tuesday, I think it was. "'Fascinating woman. "'But something queer about her. "'Deep. "'One would never know what she was up to.' "'I looked into his steady gray eyes. "'Nothing there, surely. "'I went on. "'I suppose you met her before. "'Last time I was here. "'She and her husband had just come here to live.' "'He paused a minute, and then added, "'Rum thing. 
She had changed a lot between then and now. How changed? I asked. Looked ten years older. Were you down here when her husband died? I asked, trying to make the question sound as casual as possible. No. From all I heard, it would be a good riddance. Uncharitable, perhaps, but the truth. I agreed. Ashley Ferraris was by no means a pattern husband. I said cautiously. Blaggard, I thought, said Blunt. No, I said. Only a man with more money than was good for him. Ah, money. All the troubles in the world can be put down to money, or the lack of it. Which has been your particular trouble? I asked. I have enough for what I want. I'm one of the lucky ones. Indeed. I'm not too flush just now, as a matter of fact. Came into a legacy a year ago, and like a fool let myself be persuaded into putting it into some wildcat scheme. I sympathized, and narrated my own similar trouble. Then the gong peeled out, and we all went into lunch. Poirot drew me back a little. Eh? Bien? He's all right, I said. I'm sure of it. Nothing disturbing? He had a legacy just a year ago, I said. But why not? Why shouldn't he? I'll swear the man is perfectly square and above board. Without doubt, without doubt, said Poirot, soothingly. Do not upset yourself. He spoke as if he were speaking to a fractious child. We all trooped into the dining room. It seemed incredible that less than twenty-four hours had passed since I last sat at that table. Afterwards, Mrs. Ackroyd took me aside and sat down with me on a sofa. "'I can't help feeling a little hurt,' she murmured, producing a handkerchief of the kind obviously not meant to be cried into. "'Hurt, I mean, by Roger's lack of confidence in me. That twenty thousand pounds ought to have been left to me, not to Flora. A mother could be trusted to safeguard the interests of her child.' "'A lack of trust, I call it.' "'You forget, Mrs. Ackroyd,' I said. "'Flora was Ackroyd's own niece, a blood relation. "'It would have been different had you been his sister instead of his sister-in-law.' "'As poor Cecil's widow, I think my feelings ought to have been considered,' said the lady, touching her eyelashes gingerly with the handkerchief. "'But Roger was always most peculiar, not to say mean, about money matters. "'It's been a most difficult position for both Flora and myself.' "'He did not even give the poor child an allowance. "'He would pay her bills, you know, "'and even that with a good deal of reluctance "'at asking what she wanted all those foul-lols for. "'So like a man. "'But now I've forgotten what it was I was going to say. "'Oh, yes, not a penny we could call our own, you know. "'Flora resented it. "'Yes, I must say she resented it very strongly. "'Though devoted to her uncle, of course.' "'but any girl would have resented it. "'Yes, I must say Roger had very strange ideas about money. "'He wouldn't even buy new face towels, "'though I told him the old ones were all holes. "'And then,' proceeded Mrs. Ackroyd, "'with a sudden leap highly characteristic of her conversation, "'to leave all that money, a thousand pounds, fancy, a thousand pounds, "'to that woman. "'What woman? "'That Russell woman. "'Something very queer about her.' "'and so I've always said. "'But Roger wouldn't hear a word against her, "'said she was a woman of great force of character, "'and that he admired and respected her. "'He was always going on about her rectitude "'and independence and moral worth. "'I think there's something fishy about her. "'She was certainly doing her best to marry Roger. 
"'but I soon put a stop to that. "'She always hated me. "'Naturally, I saw through her. "'I began to wonder if there was any chance "'of stemming Mrs. Ackroyd's eloquence "'and getting away. "'Mr. Hammond provided the necessary diversion "'by coming up to say good-bye. "'I seized my chance and rose also. "'About the inquest,' I said, "'where would you prefer it to be held? "'Here or at the Three Boars?' "'Mrs. Ackroyd stared at me with a dropped jaw. "'The inquest?' she asked, the picture of consternation. "'But surely there won't have to be an inquest.' "'Mr. Hammond gave a dry little cough and murmured, "'Inevitable, under the circumstances, in two short little barks. "'But surely Dr. Shepherd can arrange. "'There are limits to my powers of arrangement,' I said dryly. "'If his death was an accident,' "'He was murdered, Mrs. Ackroyd,' I said brutally. She gave a little cry. "'No theory of accident will hold water for a minute.' Mrs. Ackroyd looked at me in distress. I had no patience with what I thought was her silly fear of unpleasantness. "'If there's an inquest, I shan't have to answer questions and all that, shall I?' she asked. "'I don't know what will be necessary,' I answered. "'I imagine Mr. Raymond will take the brunt of it off you. "'He knows all the circumstances "'and can give formal evidence of identification.' "'The lawyer assented with a little bow. "'I really don't think there's anything to dread, Mrs. Ackroyd,' "'he said. "'You'll be spared all unpleasantness. "'Now, as to the question of money, "'have you all you need for the present? "'I mean,' he added, "'as she looked at him inquiringly, "'ready money. "'Cash, you know.' "'If not, I can arrange to let you have whatever you require.' "'That ought to be all right,' said Raymond, who was standing by. "'Mr. Ackroyd cast a check for a hundred pounds yesterday.' "'A hundred pounds?' "'Yes, for wages and other expenses due today. "'At the moment it's still intact.' "'Where is this money? In his desk?' "'No, he always kept his cash in his bedroom, "'in an old collar box, to be accurate. "'Funny idea, wasn't it?' "'I think,' said the lawyer, "'we ought to make sure the money is there before I leave.' "'Certainly,' agreed the secretary. "'I'll take you up now. "'Oh, I forgot. "'The door's locked.' Inquiry from Parker elicited the information that Inspector Ragland was in the housekeeper's room asking a few supplementary questions. A few minutes later, the inspector joined the party in the hall, bringing the key with him. He unlocked the door "'and we passed into the lobby and up the small staircase. "'At the top of the stairs, the door into Ackroyd's bedroom stood open. "'Inside the room it was dark, the curtains were drawn, "'and the bed was turned down just as it had been last night. "'The inspector drew the curtains, letting in the sunlight, "'and Geoffrey Raymond went to the top drawer of a rosewood bureau. "'He kept his money like that, in an unlocked drawer?' "'Just fancy,' commented the inspector. The secretary flushed a little. Uh, "'Mr. Ackroyd had perfect faith in the honesty of all the servants,' he said hotly. "'Oh, quite so,' said the inspector hastily. Raymond opened the drawer, took out a round leather collar box from the back of it, and opening it, drew out a thick wallet. "'Here is the money,' he said, taking out a fat roll of notes. "'You'll find the hundred intact, I know, for Mr. Ackroyd—' "'put it in the collar-box in my presence last night "'when he was dressing for dinner, "'and, of course, it has not been touched since.' 
Mr. Hammond took the roll from him and counted it. He looked up sharply. A hundred pounds, you said? But there's only sixty here. Raymond stared at him. Impossible, he cried, springing forward. Taking the notes from the other's hand, he counted them aloud. Mr. Hammond had been right. The total amounted to sixty pounds. But I can't understand it, cried the secretary, bewildered. Poirot asked a question. "'You saw Mr. Ackroyd put this money away last night "'when he was dressing for dinner? "'You are sure he had not paid away any of it already?' "'I'm sure he hadn't. "'He even said, "'I don't want to take a hundred pounds down to dinner with me. "'Too bulgy.' "'Then the affair is very simple,' remarked Poirot. "'Either he paid out that forty pounds sometime last evening, "'or else it has been stolen.' "'That's the matter in a nutshell.' "'agreed the inspector. "'He turned to Mrs. Ackroyd. "'Which of the servants would come in here yesterday evening?' "'I suppose the housemaid would turn down the bed.' "'Who is she? "'What do you know about her?' "'She's not been here very long,' said Mrs. Ackroyd. "'She's a nice, ordinary country girl.' "'I think we ought to clear this matter up,' said the inspector. "'If Mr. Ackroyd paid that money away himself, "'it may have a bearing on the mystery of the crime.' "'The other servants all right, as far as you know?' "'Oh, I think so.' "'Not missed anything before?' "'No.' "'None of them leaving, or anything like that?' "'The parlor maid is leaving.' "'When?' "'She gave notice yesterday, I believe.' "'To you?' "'Oh, no. I have nothing to do with the servants. Miss Russell attends to the household matters.' The inspector remained lost in thought for a minute or two. Then he nodded his head and remarked, "'I think I'd better have a word with Miss Russell, "'and I'll see the girl Dale as well.' Poirot and I accompanied him to the housekeeper's room. Miss Russell received us with her usual sans Freud. Elsie Dale, according to her, had been at Fernley five months. A nice girl, quick at her duties and most respectable. Good references. The last girl in the world to take anything not belonging to her. "'What about the parlor-maid?' said the inspector. "'She, too, was a most superior girl, very quiet and ladylike, an excellent worker.' "'Then why is she leaving?' asked the inspector. Miss Russell pursed up her lips. "'It was none of my doing. I understand Mr. Ackroyd found fault with her yesterday afternoon. It was her duty to do the study, and she disarranged some of the papers on his desk, I believe. He was very annoyed about it, and she gave notice. At least, that's what I understood from her.' "'but perhaps you'd like to see her yourselves.' "'The inspector assented. "'I had already noticed the girl "'when she was waiting on us at lunch. "'A tall girl with a lot of brown hair "'rolled tightly away at the back of her neck "'and very steady gray eyes. "'She came in answer to the housekeeper's summons "'and stood very straight "'with those same gray eyes fixed on us. "'You are Ursula Bourne?' "'asked the inspector. "'Yes, sir.' "'I understand you're leaving.' "'Yes, sir.' "'Why is that?' "'I disarranged some papers on Mr. Ackroyd's desk. "'He was very angry about it, and I said I'd better leave. "'He told me to go as soon as possible. "'Were you in Mr. Ackroyd's bedroom at all last night, "'tidying up or anything?' "'No, sir. That's Elsie's work. "'I never went near that part of the house. "'I must tell you, my girl, "'that a large sum of money is missing from Mr. Ackroyd's room. "'At last I saw her roused. "'A wave of color swept over her face.' "'I know nothing about any money. "'If you think I took it, 
"'and that that is why Mr. Ackroy dismissed me? "'You are wrong.' "'I'm not accusing you of taking it, my girl,' said the inspector. "'Don't flare up so.' "'The girl looked at him coldly. "'You can search my things if you like,' she said disdainfully. "'But you won't find anything.' "'Poirot suddenly interposed. "'It was yesterday afternoon that Mr. Ackroyd dismissed you, "'or you dismissed yourself. "'Was it not?' he asked. "'The girl nodded. "'How long did the interview last?' "'The interview?' "'Yes, the interview between you and Mr. Ackroyd in the study.' "'I... I don't know. Twenty minutes? Half an hour? "'Something like that. "'Not longer?' "'Not longer than half an hour, certainly. "'Thank you, mademoiselle.' "'I looked curiously at him, "'who was rearranging a few objects on the table.' "'setting them straight with precise fingers. "'His eyes were shining. "'That'll do,' said the inspector. "'Ursula Bourne disappeared. "'The inspector turned to Miss Russell. "'How long has she been here? "'Have you got a copy of the reference you had with her?' "'Without answering the first question, "'Miss Russell moved to an adjacent bureau, "'opened one of the drawers, "'and took out a handful of letters "'clipped together with a patent fastener. "'She selected one and handed it to the inspector.' "'Hmm,' said he. "'Reads all right. "'Mrs. Richard Folliot, Marby Grange, Marby. "'Who's this woman?' "'Quite good county people,' said Miss Russell. "'Well,' said the inspector, handing it back, "'let's have a look at the other one, Elsie Dale.' "'Elsie Dale was a big, fair girl, "'with a pleasant but slightly stupid face. "'She answered our questions readily enough "'and showed much distress and concern "'at the loss of the money.' "'I don't think there's anything wrong with her,' observed the inspector, after he had dismissed her. "'What about Parker?' Miss Russell pursed her lips together and made no reply. "'I've a feeling there's something wrong about that man,' the inspector continued thoughtfully. "'The trouble is that I don't quite see when he got his opportunity. He'd be busy with his duties immediately after dinner, and he's got a pretty good alibi all through the evening. I know, for I've been devoting particular attention to it.' "'Well, thank you very much, Miss Russell. "'We'll leave things as they are for the present. "'It's highly probable Mr. Ackroyd paid that money away himself.' "'The housekeeper bade us a dry good afternoon, and we took our leave. "'I left the house with Poirot. "'I wonder,' I said, breaking the silence, "'what the papers the girl disarranged could have been "'for Ackroyd to have got into such a state about them. "'I wonder if there's any clue there to the mystery.' "'The secretary said there were no papers of particular importance on the desk,' said Poirot quietly. "'Yes, but—' I paused. "'It strikes you as odd that Ackroyd should have flown into a raid about so trivial a matter?' "'Yes, it does.' "'But was it a trivial matter?' "'Of course,' I admitted. "'We don't know what those papers may have been. "'But Raymond certainly said—' "'Leave Monsieur Raymond out of it for a minute. "'What did you think of that girl? "'Which girl? The parlor-maid? "'Yes, the parlor-maid, Ursula Bourne. "'She seemed a nice girl,' I said hesitatingly. "'Poirot repeated my words, "'but whereas I had laid a slight stress on the fourth word, "'nice, he put it on the second. "'She seemed a nice girl, yes?' "'Then, after a minute's silence, he took something from his pocket and handed it to me. 
See, my friend, I will show you something. Look there. The paper he had handed me was that compiled by the inspector and given to him by Poirot that morning. Following the pointing finger, I saw a small cross marked in pencil opposite the name Ursula Bourne. You may not have noticed it at the time, my good friend, but there was one person on this list whose alibi had no kind of confirmation. Ursula Bourne. You don't think. Dr. Shepard, I dare to think anything. Ursula Bourne may have killed Mr. Aykroyd, but I confess I can see no motive for her doing so. Can you? He looked at me very hard, so hard that I felt uncomfortable. Can you? he repeated. No motive whatsoever, I said firmly. His gaze relaxed. He frowned and murmured to himself. Since the blackmailer is a man, it follows that she cannot be the blackmailer. Then... I coughed. As far as that goes, I began doubtfully. He spun round on me. What? What are you going to say? Nothing. Only that, strictly speaking, Mrs. Ferrars, in her letter, mentioned a person. She didn't actually specify a man. But we took it for granted, Ackroyd and I, that it was a man. Poirot did not seem to be listening to me. He was muttering to himself again. But then it is possible, after all. Yes, certainly it is possible. But then, ah, I must rearrange my ideas. Method, order, never have I needed them more. Everything must fit in, in its appointed place. Otherwise, I'm on the wrong tack. He broke off and whirled round upon me again. Where is Marby? It's on the other side of Cranchester. How far away? Oh, fourteen miles, perhaps. Would it be possible for you to go there tomorrow, say? Tomorrow? Let me see. That's Sunday. Yes, I could arrange it. What do you want me to do there? I want you to see this Mrs. Foliot. Find out all you can about Ursula Bourne. Very well. But I don't much care for the job. It is not time to make difficulties. A man's life may hang on this. Poor Ralph, I said with a sigh. You believe him to be innocent, though? Poirot looked at me very gravely. Do you want to know the truth? Of course. Then you shall have it. My friend, everything points to the assumption that he is guilty. What? I exclaimed. Poirot nodded. Yes, that stupid inspector, but he is stupid, has everything pointing his way. I seek for the truth, and the truth leads me every time to Ralph Petain. Motive, opportunity, means, but I will leave no stone unturned. I promised Mademoiselle Flora, and she was very sure, that little one. But very sure indeed. Thank you for joining us for chapters 9 and 10 of The Murder of Roger Ackroyd by Agatha Christie. We really appreciate reviews, and this is Sweeps Month for Reviews. So all of you Apple listeners, because I think Apple is the last place you can leave reviews. Maybe Spotify, but I'm not sure. 
So if some of you Apple listeners who are enjoying the show could please take a moment and find time for a kind review, we would appreciate that very, very much. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Stories for the Road. We'll return next Sunday night at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.